Welcome back to our podcast at Canvas Library, section 12 of the Journal of a Lifetime. Shaft 4, where it blew whoever was standing near the entrance out of the tunnel and into the open ground. The miners who were not near the entrance never had a chance. They died instantly. Two of them were my Information regarding the accident was choppy and cloudy and was delivered to me in pieces and chunks. I don't think those who were telling me about the incident knew I was fully conscientious of my surroundings. They were more concerned about getting me to breathe without my eyes rolling back into my head. I remember waking up and feeling the side of my skull hurting. It felt like a toddler with a plastic hammer sat banging away at my brain. Everything below my waist hurt. I figured my legs were broken, which, later, in the hospital, it turned out I was right. I couldn't move, but I could shift my head around just enough to notice all the chaos taking place around me. People were shouting and screaming. I recall, recall not being able to focus on any one particular thing. There were so many fire trucks and police cars flooding my immediate area. The acrid smelling dust blanketed the buildings that hugged the perimeter of the mine shafts. Sheets of paper were falling and moving erratically through the sky like snowflakes in a windstorm. My guess is part of the office trailer was blown apart in the explosion and the valley breezes were blowing them about. There were moments during those fleeting moments of confusion where I honestly didn't know if I was alive or dead. Everything, I mean everything, was a blur. I remember seeing an older man holding the, the hand of a younger boy and I immediately thought of Grandpa. Was it Gramps? Was I in heaven? But the pain reminded me that I wasn't, and shortly after having that moment of clarity, a couple of first responders shined a light into my eyes and asked my name. The voices were muffled because my ears were ringing, but I guess I managed to give them the answer they were looking for. I was lifted and shuffled into the waiting ambulance, where tubes and wires and all sorts of medical equipment were shoved into my bruised body. Now, I can't remember much, but I remember how much it hurt. The feeling of absolute pain was a sensation I'll never soon forget. The woman who accompanied me in the ambulance, along with her partner, a man, seemed like two of the sweetest people in the universe. Now, maybe I'm exaggerating, but when you're in that much discomfort, you really believe they are. They looked to be in the 40s, I presume, but they weren't much older than me. And as they were talking to me, assuring me that everything was going to be alright, I couldn't help but pretend they were my parents. They were performing duties that reminded me of what I thought a parent's responsibilities should be. They were comforting, reassuring, and protective. The three main ingredients in serving up a home-cooked dish of love. I knew Brenda and Carl weren't my parents, but make-believe does wonders for your soul during your time of peril. And that's what it was, peril. As I was listening to the rhythmic sound of the ambulance sirens blaring, darting my eyes back and forth at the metal instruments, medical instruments hanging on the walls of the truck, all I could think about was loneliness. Where are my people? Who was going to hug me when I arrived at the hospital? Who could I hug when I got to the hospital? It was the loneliest I felt in almost 20 years. Carl and Brenda told me how lucky I was to survive the explosion. They said if I hadn't been another 20 meters further into the mineshaft tunnel, I wouldn't be there talking to them. Being in the shape I was in, I wouldn't have necessarily considered myself to be lucky. In fact, knowing that I would about, in fact, knowing what I know about my injuries, I considered myself to be unlucky. Think about it. I was so close to seeing Gramps again and meeting my parents and hugging my grandmother. I would have had purpose again instead of living in this lonely life at Gramps' house. I must have blacked out at some point during the ride because my next memory was waking up in the hospital bed. There was no room curtain. I had no roommate, only me. I realized my hearing had improved because I heard with perfect clarity the musical cadence of my vital signs beeping beside me. Looking out my window, off in the distance, I could see what the closest thing to home right now was. It was the disproportionately sized James River. It was the only time I truly remember smiling since being rescued from Bloomdale. It was instantly, it instantly made me think of Grandpa, the great DL, the sage, the guy everybody loved, the guy with the all, with all of the best advice. 
Laying here alone with just a window view of the best memories I ever had didn't help me notice the cold flow of tears streaming down my cheeks. I didn't even know when I started crying, but I knew I missed him immensely. I missed my family. Many times we travel through life and we don't stop to look around. We wait for the next ship, but that ship has already sailed. We lose touch with what is right in front of us the whole time, or we just choose to ignore it. But in that instance, the moment of seeing the James River with all the memories that came flooding back containing Grandpa, I finally had my moment of clarity. I had my epiphany. It only took me 20 or so years to get it. I realized that I didn't need to find a special girl or get married or do all those traditional things people do when they lead normal ways of life. There was no normal for me. This was There was just life. I realized and understood that I could make a difference the very same way Grandpa made a difference for me. I finally understood what Grandpa tried to install in me so many times fishing trip, so many fishing trips ago. Life was about duty and fulfilling others with joy, happiness, and unselfishness. I realized in that hospital bed, right then and there, staring tearfully at the James River, that the most important decision I could ever make was to adopt. I was going to adopt a family. I was going to be the mentor my grandfather was to me. I was going to be a father figure to them, the same as Gramps was to me. I was going to do whatever it took to bring a child out of the world of uncertainty, a world of loneliness, a world where you had a temporary bed and an ever-changing address. I was going to make it a place where you felt secure, a place with wisdom, laughter, and guidance. I was going to bring them into a place that was not devoid of the best emotion in this world, love. It's the best weapon you can use to conquer all the bad in the world. All you have to do is to give to get it. It's the simplest math equation you could ever try to solve. After I healed and could study myself with within society again, my first priority was to put an application in. Although this time it wouldn't be with Bomb Dumb Mind Corp. It would be with the adoption agency of Mitchell. I was going to bring a child out of the orphanage system and turn my house into a home. This was my purpose in life. It wasn't climbing the promotion ladder at Blumdale or keeping to myself holding on a quiet life. And it wasn't walking up the block staring at someone else's life, wishing for something that wasn't mine or could have been. It wasn't clinging to a past that didn't belong to me anymore. Those lonely days seemed long gone. It wasn't about my friends or anything else. No, this life was about what's going to be. That's the now, the present. This was the big change I was going to make, both in my life and the life of a lost child. I was once lost too, but I was found. And Grandpa, you saved me in many more ways than one. You'll never fully know what a hero you really are. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for section 13 of the Journal of a Lifetime.